to Luke chapter 12. The scripture reading this morning will be from Luke 12, 54, all the way to 13, verse 9. As we pick up in this reading, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, where he will ultimately bear his cross. Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? And you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Least he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will, ne- you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Solomon fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and he came to seek fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should I it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it, and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Children, you may go to your respective classes. Let's return to the scripture that we read with Tyler just a few moments ago from Luke chapter 12. And Luke chapter 13, we'll begin with verse 54. We'll run through chapter 13, verse 9. If you're visiting, we're in a study, obviously, in the gospel according to Luke, the only one of the gospels written by a Gentile, uh, a very, very strong historian uh, is Dr. Luke. Uh, Very detailed, the most detailed of all the gospels. I would remind those of you who have been here the last few weeks, Jesus has been focused on teaching his disciples. Now, the world is there. The world is around him. But he's focused on the disciples, uh, saying uh, strong words to them. Uh, Luke 12 and 13, if you, if, you, if you start reading in chapters 9, 10, 11, you come to chapters 12 and 13. You see that there's an urgency 
you see that there's an in-your-face teaching. You see that it's, Jesus becomes extremely confrontational uh, in these messages. At first glance, looking at the last part of, of Luke 12, beginning with verse 54, uh, you, you seem to want to take, we want to take that apart. Uh, and uh, apart from anything before, anything after, but it's not, it's tied directly to what comes before, but it's starting a, a, a little different thread. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, uh, you really think, well, this is not, has anything to do with the last chapter. It's inextricably entwined. Uh, with, and that's why we're with, with what came before, with what comes before. So that's why we're taking these together. It's all about the same subject. We'll see that this morning in the few minutes we have in His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a precious time! We meet, come before you, and moved by your transcendence and your glory, we sing hymns of praise, moved by the great grace and sacrifice of your Son, we sing of the wonder of our salvation. Our Father, we confess our sins. We bow before you in prayers of thanksgiving. And Father, what a precious time that we can come now before you as our Father and speak to you about our greatest concerns with each other. We are, Father, a congregation of priests, not just of prophets bringing God's word to the world around us, but priests are busy taking the world around us before you. Our Father, this morning, we thank you uh, that Billy Griggs is here. We thank you for his testimony, and we pray again that you would bless him and give him physical strength, give him mental and emotional strength. Most of all, we pray that you would strengthen his soul for these days. We thank you for his testimony. We pray for Jim Bennington. The same prayer, Father, that you would bless him and give him strength. We pray, our Father, for Priscilla Turner, that you would, what a testimony she's been. And we pray that, Father, you would bring healing to her, even a complete healing. That's not beyond you. There's nothing beyond your hand. But we pray most of all that you would give her that same spiritual fiber and strength that we've seen, that you will continue to grow that in her. We pray for Janet Sartell, Father. She yearns to see you, to see the glory which she has praised all of her life. And we pray that you would soon take her by the hand and lead her home. Our Father, now, as we open your word, we pray you would teach us. We pray that in the next few minutes something supernatural will happen in this place. It should happen every time anyone stands behind this holy desk. 
Well, Father, no one that stands behind this desk can speak so that folks are changed from the inside out. Only your spirit can do that. And so we pray in these next few minutes that we at Christ Presbyterian Church would hear your spirit. That this message would be a demonstration of the power of your spirit to teach, to change your people. Oh, Father, I pray you would change me in these next few minutes. Change us, Father. Continue to grow us in Christ. Change maybe some of us for the first time. For the glory of Christ, we pray. For his glory. Amen. Do you recognize the signs of the times in 2018? These last three years, the Sartells have been reading the signs of the times in our family. Three years ago, Janet was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She went through devastating surgery, as you know. Went through extremely hard radiation and chemotherapy treatments. We sought the guidance, the counsel of excellent doctors. We studied and read medical journals. But, but from the beginning, we knew that we were ultimately all right. Why? Because from God's word, we understood what was taking place in our lives. You know, whether you are looking at your own personal life, your own household and what's happening there, or whether you're looking at what's happening on a national basis in Washington, D.C., if you look through the lens of God's Word, you will have a unique understanding of what is happening in the world around you. You will have an understanding that the world doesn't have. That's what Jesus, I've just summed up what Jesus was saying in the passage before us this morning. Do you recognize Jesus was saying to the people, you're not recognizing the signs of the times. In this passage before us, from 1254 through 13.9, Jesus is teaching the disciples four truths, four truths that will help them interpret the times in which they live. If you understand these four truths, you'll be able to look at the world around you and understand what's happening. The first truth. Jesus is saying that God is present and is at work in our world. Look at verse 54. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, ultimately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. Immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the wind blows from the south, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time. What was it 
Jesus was asking them to interpret what God was doing in their world. They could interpret, look at the weather, signs of the weather. Yeah, it's going to rain or it's going to be hot. But they could look around them and, and they couldn't see what God was doing. Now, the presupposition, this is important. The presupposition of this statement by Jesus is that God is active and at work in our world. If he wasn't at work in their world, in our world, then there was nothing for them to interpret. So Jesus' presupposition, Jesus' premise is that God is at work. So I ask you the question this morning. There's a question before the house. Do you believe God is at work in our world, in your world where you live, in Fayette County, in your family? That's a huge question. There are people around us every day that would say God has not been at work and is not at work in our world. And so you, there's nothing to interpret. But Jesus was not speaking to those people. He was not speaking to the world. Look what he said. What did he say? When he, what did he call them? He said, you hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who says they believe one thing, but lives as if he doesn't believe it. Jesus was saying, you say you're the people of God. Church people. You say you believe God is at work in your world, but you live as if he's not at work. You live completely blind to what's happening right in front of you. So here's a question for me this morning, for you. Do you believe God? God the creator, God the sustainer, God the redeemer is at work in your world. I don't care whether you're at Fay Academy, whether you're a student, whether you're in elementary school, whether you're in college, whether you're working somewhere in Shelby or, or Fayette County, whether you're retired. Do you believe God? The creator, the sustainer, and redeemer is at work in your world. Do you? Then Jesus is speaking to you in this scene. He's speaking to us this morning in this, from this scripture. Second question. Are you living as, you, as if you believe it? Does your life look like it? Do you look at the world around you and understand what God is doing? Those are the two questions. Jesus was exasperated when he said this. Now remember, he's the son of God. He is, he is God in flesh. He was perturbed. He was, he was perturbed. He was the Messiah. He had made blind people see. He had made paralyzed people walk. He had raised the dead. He had stopped storms. He had fed thousands with Two pieces of bread or several pieces of bread and several pieces of fish. But they had not believed. By and large, the leadership of God's people in that day, he had been ignored. He had been rebuked. He had been even called Satan. 
They did not perceive that he was Messiah. They, they had not discerned the work, what God was doing. God was doing the greatest in Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. We're reading the greatest work done by God on the face of the earth since creation. God becoming flesh, sacrificing his life for his people. And they were not able to read these signs. The story of the Bible, you begin in Genesis and you'll see it. The story of the Bible is that God made this world and is at work in it. Sometimes, it says so in this passage, sometimes he's been at work in mercy and patience. Sometimes he's been at work bringing justice and judgment. Sometimes he's been at work building civilizations and nations. Sometimes he's been at work tearing down civilizations and nations. Sometimes there's been a great outpouring of his spirit. He's been at work redeeming and saving. But he's always been at work. I don't see how you can look at our country today, our culture today, and not see God's hand in judgment. I believe with all my heart and soul that our country has already come under God's temporal judgment. Not the final judgment, but God's temporal judgment. I believe God has turned us over to our own sins and the results of our own sins. You know, he doesn't have to do anything supernatural. He doesn't have to send an angel down to, to cast a plague on us. Look at it this way. If, if you spoil your child, you know, if you, if you raise your child and you spoil him or her rotten, we'll call it a him, you spoil this son rotten. You give him everything he wants. Everyone in this room knows what's going to happen. He's going to grow up to be a royal, royal brat. He'll be a pain in your family all through his elementary years, all through his high school years, and all through his adult life. That's the judgment of God, folks. That's the judgment of God. That's God at work in our midst. God has set up his world. That's the way it works. He's turned us over in this country to our own sins. You see it every day. During our building program here at Christ Pres, uh, oh, wasn't it great that we had this property for years and finally we could build a, a building on it? And We would come by. You would come by. You knew workmen were here working. And you'd come by to see what was being done. And you'd come by one week, and then a week later, two weeks later, you'd come by again. Why would you come by again? You'd already seen it. You'd come by again because you knew they were at work here, and you wanted to see what they were doing. That's the way we look at the world. I can understand what God's doing in my family when I look through the lens of, of his word. I can see what he's doing at Christ Presbyterian if I look through the lens of his word. I can see what he's doing in Washington, D.C. As I, as I look through the lens of his word. 
There's a great story about Charles that Charles Hodge tells. Charles Hodge, one of the great, great American theologians, he was a Reformed theologian. Uh, he, he went to Princeton as a student, and he spoke fondly of his, of his years there. And he would, I'll just read it to you. I was going to tell you the story, but I'll just read it to you. It'll be faster. This is what, this is what Charles Hodge wrote. It was my privilege to be the pupil assistant of Professor Joseph Henry. Now, Joseph Henry was a renowned scientist. When for the first time, electric signals were being sent from point to point, the earth itself being used for return current, Professor Henry would put me at one end of the circuit while he stood directing the experiment at the other end of the circuit. I can well remember the wonderful care with which he arranged them. Very often, when the testing moment came, he would raise his hand in adoring reverence and say to me, Mr. Hodge, take off your hat, uncover your head, and worship in silence, because God is here, and I'm about to ask him a question. What was he saying? Even in his basic scientific, Experiments, he was saying, this reveals the work of God in our midst. First truth, Jesus is teaching here. God is present and at work in our world. Second truth, a reckoning or judgment is coming. Look at verse 57 of Luke 12. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, Try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge and judge turn you over to the officer and the officer turn, throw you into the prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, chapter 13, verse 6. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? That's very obvious. Jesus says, you're going to court. You have a case, but the case is weak. And you know the judge is just. Settle with your adversary before you get to the court. He said, you read the signs of what is happening. You read the signs of what's going on. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying to them, you have a court date with the judge. And the judge is just. And you don't have a weak case. You have an impossible case. You're in extreme peril. If you don't understand these signs and set things straight. What was he saying? Judgment is coming. You can know this. You can know this. You may not understand everything that's happening around you, but you can know this great truth. Judgment is coming. There'll be a day of reckoning. Well, what about this tree business? The tree not producing. Well, who's the tree? You and me. What's the fruit? The fruit is confession and repentance and works of righteousness. The the Owner of the tree, God comes and he says, there's no fruit here. I came three years ago. There's no fruit. 
Came two years ago, there's no fruit. Came a year ago, there's no fruit. For three years, there hadn't been any fruit. Cut it down. What's he saying? Judgment has come. That's what he's saying to the crowd. You want to understand what's happening in the world? God is present and at work in your world. A reckoning or judgment is coming. Thirdly, we are a fallen people. Jesus said, know this. We, you are a fallen people living briefly in a fallen world. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their had whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Now skip down to verse 4. Are those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And what happened here? Some people came to Jesus. This wasn't a parable. Some people came to Jesus and they were doing, they were talking about current events, what was going on. And down in Jerusalem, some Galileans had been slaughtered in the temple. They had gone to make their sacrifices and the Roman soldiers had slaughtered them. Their blood had been mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. Well, the worshipers were Galileans. Galilee was a gathering place for zealots who were opposed to Rome's presence in Israel. Maybe these men were recognized by Pilate's soldiers, by the Roman soldiers, Maybe they were just suspects. It doesn't matter. We can just imagine what had happened. We can imagine what the conversation. These people were saying to Jesus, this is horrible. They were not doing anything. They were not soldiers. What's more, they were pilgrims. They had gone to Jerusalem to worship. They were cut down. Their own blood was mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. It's a tragic thing. How did Jesus respond? Look at it. Did he join their lamentation? What did he do? He pointed toward their own danger, their own peril, their own sinfulness. He could have condemned Pilate. He could have said, the man is an ungodly pagan. And he was, he was, he was a bloodthirsty governor we, as we read about him in history. But he didn't do that. What did he say? Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? See, many of the rabbis taught that if you were truly righteous and you truly followed God's law, you would never suffer such deaths. Jesus looked at these men. Can you imagine this? You come complaining and say, Jesus, you're about to 18 men got slaughtered down there. And Jesus responds by looking at you and saying, you'll perish likewise unless you do something about it. He moved from the current public tragedy to the tragedy of the death of their own souls. And then he does them one better. Jesus does this. He says, remember, remember those 18 people that were killed? They were just walking. They weren't doing anything. They were just walking by and this tower fell on them. Remember that? He says, you think somehow they were more wicked than you? 
Jesus was saying, you're looking at the suddenness of these deaths. You're looking and saying these deaths are unnecessary, whether they're caused by a cruel tyrant or collapse of a tower. You're looking at when and where and how they died. See, that's the, the greatest tragedy is that you're going to die. And it doesn't matter when. And it doesn't matter how. You're going to die. We think somehow if we know the approximate time of our death, if we live out our lives to that time, we'll be ready. Jesus said, knowing the place and time of your death will not get you ready. He said, confession and repentance. The grace of God, understanding the grace of God. That's what gets you ready to die. You know, we, we think, we say, okay, I know that one day I'm going to die. I need to make sure it could be tomorrow. It could be next week. I need to make sure that my family's taken care of. I need to make sure that there's a house, that there's money for wife and children. I need to make sure all these bases are covered. And what Jesus is saying, that's not, all those things are, are noble things. That's not going to make you ready to die. Jesus says the issue is your sin. The issue is that judgment is coming. The issue is that you're going to stand the presence of God. I've seen 80, and you have to, I've seen 88-year-old men. Been on this earth a long time, lived a long time, been successful. They were totally unready to die. I've seen six-year-olds, on the other hand, who were totally ready to die. We're fallen people living briefly in a fallen world. Think briefly. Life is so fragile. It's so short. The summer after my freshman year in college, I, I worked in several churches in Marion, Virginia. One of those churches, in one of those churches, there was a young man who had injured his knee in spring football practice. During the summer, early summer, the knee wouldn't heal, so they took him to a doctor. He had cancer. They immediately cut off his leg just above the knee. Teenager, high school, football player. He died before winter. Life was so brief. I used to, to pass over passages in Scripture. Uh, I just took them as being a poetic. When the Bible talks about our lives being like the morning dew or the morning fog, and it's, it's so brief. I don't pass over those passages anymore. I understand them. Life is brief. And say, well, John, you've lived 73 years. Scripture says that a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. 
If you figure the math on that, it's saying that my life then is like two hours to God. I used to look at butterflies. Teacher would tell me we'd study about. I'd, we'd see a butterfly that only lives two hours or only lives two days. I felt so sorry. And then God came and said, "John, you're the butterfly. A thousand years, one hour to God is forty-one point six years." If I live to be 83, I'll only live two hours in God's sight. That's what Jesus, that was his perspective when he was speaking to these people. It's not when you die. It's not how you die. It's that you're going to die. And there's only one way to be ready. It's not having all the toys it's not having all the bases covered. It's not having covered your bucket list. There's only one way that you know you're a sinner. That you know a Savior has come. That the Messiah has come. God is present at work in our world. Here's the first truth. God is present at work in our world. A reckoning or a judgment is coming. We're a fallen people living briefly in a fallen world. You want to be able to read the signs of the time? Understand that time is a crucial issue. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 13. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. That's the tree. Leave the, alone. leave the tree alone for one more year. I'll dig around it, fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. You have a year. What is it that we read in our call to worship? It's not just seek the Lord. It's not seek the Lord anytime you will. He said, seek the Lord while he may be found. You know, he determines whether you'll be found or not. Him, not you. Think about, think about the ministry of Jesus. Now, he continued with his people even to this very day. But those three years, that very special time in Galilee, Judea, in the cities of Galilee, down in Jerusalem, in Judah. Wow. Think about it. All that they saw. It was only for three years. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Those are no idle words. He draws near and a great work is done. But there's no spiritual sensitivity. And his people just walk, blandly, just walk blindly by. As if nothing is happening. And God is saying, this will not go on forever. Take advantage of his visitation on you. We are wonderfully blessed right now at Christ Presbyterian Church. But if we don't understand how we're being blessed, if we don't understand this is the hand of God and it's for now, and we can't take it for granted that it's going to be here in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, 
We can't raise our children any way we want to and expect that kind of blessing to continue. There are windows of opportunity, and when they're not used, the misuse of those opportunities are added to our list of already innumerable sins. Let me say it again. There are windows of opportunity. God draws near. And when those windows of opportunity are not used, then the misuse of those very opportunities are added to our already innumerable sins. Look at Romans 2.4, the last scripture on our scripture sheet. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and what? Patience. Not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. God draws near and said, now's the time. And we say, not yet. We say, i got stuff to do, got things to do, got, you know. We walk blindly by the opportunity. God removes the opportunity. What was it he said in Amos? Read the book of Amos this afternoon. He said, the people of Israel, where God's word had once spread through the land, And they paid no attention to it. And he said, one day, and this came true. He said, one day, you'll search to the north for God's word and you'll not find it. And you'll say, well, maybe it's in the south and you'll travel to the south looking for God's word. Maybe it's in the east and you travel to the east looking for God's word. Then you say, well, maybe it's in the... He said, you won't find it because I've removed it. I've removed it. On September 21st, 1938, a hurricane of monstrous proportions struck the east coast of the United States. We usually don't see hurricanes hit Long Island. But that day, September 21st, 1938, one of immense power struck Long Island. William Manchester wrote about it in a book titled The Glory and the Dream. He said that the great, I quote, the great wall of Brian struck the beach of Long Island at 2.30 p.m. So mighty was the power of that first storm wave that its impact registered on the seismograph in Sitka, Alaska. While the spray carried northward, northward at well over 100 miles an hour, whitened windows in Montpelier, Vermont. They were caught by surprise. The Long Islanders that saw the waves coming jumped in their cars and raced inland by car. They said that that those that did that said that they had to maintain 50 miles an hour, or it would over the 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 water would overcome them, overwhelm them, would catch up with them. They still don't know how many died that day racing inland. Manchester tells one story. However, that is, if it wasn't tragic or it's amusing, even though it's tragic in nature, this storm was not forecast. 
the meteorologists completely missed it. It caught everyone by surprise. Manchester tells about a man from Long Island who the week previously had been in New York City. And he saw this barometer. And he said, that's perfect. He said, it's, it's a beautiful barometer. I can put it on my wall. Beautiful piece. I can tell what the weather's going to be. And so he bought the barometer, had it shipped. It arrived on the morning of September 21st. He picked it up to the post office, took it to his house, took it out of the box. And the needle pointed below 29, where the dial read hurricanes and tornadoes. Well, he shook it. He turned it upside down, turned it over, beat it against the wall. He couldn't get it to change. So he reboxed it, drove to the post office, and sent it back to the store in New York City. While he was doing that, his home was blown away. People, that's what we do. We say that can't be the forecast. That can't be what's going to happen. We look at this and refuse to look at the world around us through the lens of God's Word. We send the barometer back. It's not for us. Got to be wrong. If that's what we do, we'll never understand the signs of the times, whether it's in our own hope or whether it's in Washington, D.C. But know this. If you mail the barometer back, it doesn't change the weather that's coming. Our hymn is a hymn song in great faith and affirmation in Christ alone.